Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. Phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Hey, Noah. Do you ever, uh, you ever have those times where you're just going to beat your head against a thing and then you just have to admit... I have no idea what I'm doing. I have those moments every once in a while. And to be honest with you, I kind of feel stupid about it. So maybe you could help me with this because it feels like as a tech guy, like I should be the guy on top of tech stuff. And so when I come across something technical, particularly if it's a colleague that brought it up, I feel kind of out of my place, you know? Yeah. You know, I've because I spend a lot of time helping other people learn, I don't feel silly when, um, when I encounter things that I... I am not very comfortable with or or that I'm brand new. And so I met a, uh, a woman a couple of years ago, back before COVID. Mm-hmm. Her name is um, Elle Marquez. And she has, she likes to say, it's okay to be new. And she's la- actually had like stickers made up for that. And she puts some places because she, she transitioned into like, um, I guess, cybersecurity for lack of a better way of putting it you know mm-hmm. the red team blue team sort of thing late mm-hmm. in life and so she's often asking i don't want to say beginner questions but you know things that sure. like things someone that yeah someone someone in the in the mid stages of life might know if you've been in that um, thing so i take a lot of inspiration from her in terms of it's okay to be new and um so when i'm encountering things i don't mind coming and saying you know what I really don't understand what the hell I'm doing. You know, at, at the end of the day, it's it's better to be honest and, and just come hat in hand and say, I don't know, because the people that are going to help you are probably going to react a lot more sympathetically than if you continuously say, like, I tried that, I know this, you know, you, you're giving oh, that 100%. Sort of- I tell you what, one of my biggest pet peeves in the IAT industry, and one of the fastest way to get yourself fired at AltaSpeed, is if you don't know what you're talking about, and you come into my office and pretend that you do. If you don't understand something, just say, I don't know. And if you are, if you sit there and make stuff up in the effort to try to convince, it's just, it's not effective. What did you come into this week that you didn't know about, Steve? Well, so... I have been playing around with um, K3s. So I set out to to learn how vanilla Kubernetes does things. Okay. And uh, because OpenShift does it, one of the values in OpenShift is it's a Kubernetes distribution that has taken a lot of pains to smooth things out for you. Okay. Um, And so it's kind of the difference between, I don't want to say exactly Linux from scratch versus Ubuntu because that's a huge gap. But, you know, like there's there's a big gap between Kubernetes where you have to bring a lot of that stuff yourself and you have to know that the bits exist to Uh go plug them in, where then OpenShift like makes an opinionated way about the bits that go in. For example, like there's five or six different types of networking stack that you can have. And OpenShift makes an opinion for you so you don't have to sit and choose one and figure out how to install it. Okay, very cool. I I was backtracking and saying, okay, well, what has the vanilla experience been like? And I was trying to do something specific, 
And I ended up having to engage several people at Red Hat. And I was just like, I have no <laughs> idea what I'm doing. <laughs> like, I, I, I did this thing. I kind of copy pasted from from our docs and figured out how to do it in OpenShift. But uh-huh. for whatever reason, does not work in vanilla Kubernetes. And I've been beating my head against this for about a week now. And uh, it's been it's been frustrating. It's been a long time since I've I've been this frustrated with something. Well, if you can help Steve with Kubernetes and K38, uh, reach out live at asknoahshow.com. What what things should Steve the beginner know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, let's take it to some feedback. Oop, it helps if I hit the button. All right, our first email comes in from Corey. Corey writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I really wish I could catch your show live and ask my questions then, but life gets too busy. I emailed last week about the remote server for a friend, and I used as a taxi service. Steve hit the nail on the head, and this is what I'm using it for. Something techie to take my free time as, and as a way to share some of my movies and shows between us. Previously, we'd meet up and exchange via a hard drive, but that's becoming increasingly harder to do with life's obligations. And so last time we were able to meet up six months ago. I'd like to run, I'd like to, I'd like to run into silly issues such as my portable hard drive being formatted in EXT4 and his Windows machine not being able to read it. Despite all the harassing, he still won't change over to Linux. It's something I don't think about because Windows isn't allowed in my house. I'm going to try the mention solutions and play around with them. In the meantime, between my email and the show yesterday, I played around and set up an FTP share. I changed the default port to something above 6,000, created a user with a strong username and password, and opened the bare minimum passive ports up. I did not figure out how to create an SFTP with Open Media Vault, and I hadn't had a lot of time to go back and play with it. I realized that FTP share isn't ideal from a security standpoint, but it does work. I figured the port I picked won't be knocked on too often, and that's it's a security obscurity, which I know isn't really security at all. My friend is able to log in, upload and download, which is one issue. Every 60 seconds, there's a message that says, connection closed by server. It automatically logs back in and resumes the download upload, then 60 seconds later, it does the same thing. I'm sure it's just a setting that I'm missing, but I can't figure out where. I turned off the timer and the automatic log off and set the passive mode in FileZilla. And the server side, any help on this would be nice. Meanwhile, I'm going to take a look at some other options that were recommended. Thanks as always. P.S. I always email last week. I also emailed last week about the Raspberry Pis running Cody. I didn't want to take up all of your show time, but maybe later if you think it's worth pursuing. Thanks, Corey. So a lot of, wow, is there a lot to unpack there? Um, I want to start here because it's giving, it's, Steve, it's making my brain go into a seg fault. Is there is no purpose in choosing a secure username and password if you're sending it over FTP because it's going in plain text. So like anybody that can port mirror anywhere on the network between you and your FTP server is able to just look and see what that password is. I don't know that I'd spend a whole lot of time with a secure password. As far as, as port knocking, you're right. If somebody is just looking around for FTP servers on 21, they won't find it. A simple port scan is going to, uh, is going to alleviate that problem as well. So you're right. There are some real serious con- security concerns. I would ask this question, though. Do you think you need a lot of security if your purpose is just to share media back and forth? Like, who really cares if somebody gets a hold of a movie or a TV show or whatever it is that you move from? What I mean, does it matter? If, it, if it's something personal or private, 
um, might be on board with that. And certainly you could look at into setting up SFTP and, oh, by the way, I'm pretty sure, and I could be wrong about this, and Steve, maybe you can help me here, SFTP is just the file transfer pro- protocol over SSH, right? So if you have SSH enabled on, on a machine, chances are it's going to support SFTP. Yeah, um, just a correction. F- FTPS is quote-unquote secure. It's no longer over the over plain text because they start the S at the end stands for secure, so they added TLS ah, on the end of that. Okay. Um, so you can do things like instead of username and password, you can use certificates um, and server identities and stuff like that. Okay. So um, it's not terrible. It's not awesome because they are also using some old versions of TLS and SSL. So mm-hmm. um, it better than plain text, but but you know not awesome. In terms of uh, security through obscurity, like mm-hmm. Noah said, it would prevent somebody from specifically targeting a specific port. However, every application that listens on a port has a signature, and that's usually what the script kitties are knocking on. It just mm. scans all of the open ports for the signature of whatever they're looking for. Mm. So uh, it protects you against someone that is doing it by port, but not somebody that's doing it by application signature. Mm. So... Um, just just as a note there, it's it's not a good or a bad thing, mm-hmm. just something to be aware of. Very good. Uh, any other advice for Corey in the way of what, you know, it sounds like he's he's off to a really great start. It's, it sounds like he's implementing some of those solutions and they're working well, and it sounds like he's got a couple other ones to try. I don't know what's causing the every 60 seconds to break. That's weird, um, isn't it? I know that some... Uh, some... ISPs play funny things. So I have a Red Hat colleague and he his ISP breaks UDP packets. So uh, for example, he can't use WireGuard in its default because it's uh, it's sending UDP packets. So essentially what happens is it'll let you go on a small stream and then it'll time you out for two minutes and then it'll come back. And they do this on purpose to make sure that people aren't doing something ridiculous over... Because most of the time that's for file sharing. Okay. So, and there's nothing he can do. He set up uh, OpenVPN to get around that. Um, mm. <laughs> so sometimes your ISP can be just doing something funky. Yep, and, I've and seen that just, with Spectrum specifically. They'll drop VPN and FTP traffic. Yep. And so you could be having somebody that's, that is intentionally not blocking it, but making it painful enough that um, they're doing it as a deterrent. Mm. Uh, it's not necessarily the case, but... If you did, say, make a, a, a wire guard or an SSH or any kind of connection that they can't see the traffic going through mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. And, and it stays connected, then it's likely that somebody's doing some tinkering around. Our second email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I'm following up on your guys' suggestion to use Sophos hardware with an open source firewall software. I'm looking for a recommendation of a Sophos hardware to deploy OpenSense that has at least two 10 gig ports. Is there a Sophos model that you've deployed that has at least two 10 gig ports that you know will work with OpenSense and PFSense? So uh, just to to recap a little bit, I had there was a call, uh, emailer last week had asked, 
what do you recommend for a budget uh, PFSense box? And I said, you know, Sophos, they're essentially Intel boards on the inside. I wouldn't go any lower than like the 120-ish, uh, XG120 or XG135, whatever it is, uh, in part because they go into Atom processors. And so then it's kind of a different ballgame. But as long as you stick with the Intel ones, you're pretty good. As far as 10 gig ports, I looked at the... Um, at the XG135, which I know for sure runs uh, PFSense fine, and I'm not seeing a 10 gig port. The 210, uh, I believe, has SFP on it. Um, so potentially you could get t- uh, 10 gig there. And I'm, I'm just pulling up the, the, so it's an expansion card is how they get it. So here's, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll backtrack with a little bit of a story. So this, this Saturday, I got home and my wife, actually it was really, it was Friday night, and my, my wife tells me, hey, the internet's been really crappy all day. And you know what I, you know what the last thing I feel like doing, Steve, when I get home from work after fixing people's internet all day? Fixing internet. Yeah, it's like the bottom of my list. So I'm like, yeah, I'll look at it. And so I, I go down there and I ping, I can ping the router, I can't ping uh, anything past the router. Okay, so I restart the modem and I can ping it. Okay, it goes out. And it works for maybe... I don't know, five, 10 minutes, and then it stops again. I'm like, okay, so there's probably an issue with the, with the, with the modem because I can ping the router, but I can't ping anything else. So it has to be the modem, right? So I call the ISP and sure enough, they say, yep, we can't see the modem. It's, there's a lot of, there's, we can see it flopping. And so you should probably replace it. Okay. You guys open? No, we're not open on the weekends. All right. Go to Best Buy, buy a Motorola modem, which I'm very happy with, by the way, bring it back home, read them the MAC address, get it activated, whole nine yards. Modem's back up. Plug it back into the router, try and connect, can't get a public IP. Sitting there in PFSense, and it's just 0.0. And if, for a second, it'll get a public IP, and then it immediately uh, goes back to 0.0 and says not available. Call the ISP up. Hey, I don't think the modem's working. They said, yeah, no, it's definitely working. You just need to, uh, You, it's, we can't tell you why your router isn't working, but our modem's definitely online. So I plug the cable directly in my, into my laptop. Sure as heck, I get a public IP address. So, okay, it is a problem. Maybe there was an issue with the router all along. And so I put a spare router in place, which was the router that got replaced by the one that was there. So I'm kind of going backwards now and immediately went on eBay and ordered myself a Sophos XG210. So that's a really long way of saying that I don't have one that has 10 gig ports on it today, but I have one on the way that has an expansion port that I can put uh a 10 gig nick in and so when it gets here i will certainly do that and i will let you know what i find um but i don't i can't tell you for sure that there's one with uh sfp that works because i don't have one and i've never tried it so take that for what it's worth the interesting thing about the 210 because i've not tried this with the 210 i've tried this with the xg135 the interesting thing about the 210 is going to be uh, it doesn't like the the XG135 has a an HDMI port, so you can just kind of plug into it. The uh, the XG210 I believe just has uh, a COM port, a serial port on it, and then I on the back of it it has some sort of a port, and I wasn't able to tell for sure if it's VGA or serial. So I just ordered the thing, and I figure it'll get here, and then we'll see what happens. But assuming I can find a way to see what's going on in the thing, I should be able to install PFSense. And if it's half as easy as it was on the on the 135, I'll be real happy. Our third, or yeah, our third email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, G'day, is Noah's show Critical Thought available digitally? 
to consume and download after it streams on mainstream radio. Uh, will Noah's Critical Thought have a Mastodon account, a website, a blog, an RSS feed, or downloadable MP3 or OGG files? Thanks in advance. So again, this is kind of a recap from a few weeks ago. Uh, I talked about this. I uh, I landed a deal at Leighton Broadcasting to host their 9 to noon slot. So I'm on the air every day, 9 to noon. Uh, it's streamed online at KNOXradio.com. And we're also publishing it as a podcast. I needed the first little bit to kind of get the actual show itself off the ground and work out all of the kinks. Um, but now I've gotten the RSS feed and all of the stuff up. So you can find the show at criticalshow.thought, or excuse me, criticalthought.show rather. Um, we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. And if you're not busy nine to noon, or if you're hanging out in your work day and you want something to chew on on your ears, then I'd invite you to stream us. You can uh, go to knoxradio.com and stream it that way, or you can download the KNOX radio app and, uh, and, and, and play it on your phone. Um, so, would love to have you as a listener to that show as well. But yes, it is, as of today, available as a podcast. You can find it at uh, podcast.criticalthought.show or just go to criticalthought.show and you can download it there. It should be in iTunes and Google Play and Pocket Casts and all of the places where great podcasts are found. So uh, appreciate your interest in that. And uh, to the extent that you're interested, absolutely please check that show out or join me on the radio 9 to noon. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Google has called for contributors for a new open source project called Graph for Understanding Artifact Composition as part of its effort to improve software supply chain security. Five Wi-Fi vulnerabilities in the Linux kernel have been patched. The Russian ransomware gang Old Gremlin has now started using file encrypting malware to target Linux machines. Sonotype's eighth annual State of Software Supply Chain report has been released and it discloses that in 2022, the experts uncovered 88,000 malicious open-source packages, which is a triple-digit increase compared with 2019. Microsoft has partnered with Google, AMD, and NVIDIA to create a new open specification for a silicon root of trust dubbed Kaliptra. Researchers at Google have recently announced a mathematical secure platform, Kata OS, optimized for embedded machine learning applications. NVIDIA has launched a new Isaac ROS developer preview, with open source robot management. Red Hat and IBM have teamed up to enhance AI ops with a new open source project called Project Wisdom. Red Hat has launched a Red Hat Enterprise Linux for workstations on AWS. Canonical has released 22.10 Kinetic Kudu. Firefox 106 is out. In file system news, Intel DAOS 2.2 and Red Hat Stratus 3.3 have recently been released. QPW Graph, a graphical QT for Pipewire, has released version 0.3.7. The Apple CPU frequency driver has been updated for the Linux kernel and adds initial M2 support. The Remina project is looking for new maintainers. The Linux kernel may soon drop 486 support. And lastly, programmer and lawyer Matthew Butterick has stated that he has assembled a team of class action litigators to lead a suit against Microsoft over GitHub Copilot. Thank you, JT. You'll hear his new ca newscast at the bottom of the episode. Joining us uh, via telephone is Mark from Iowa. Welcome in, sir. Hey, Noah. How's it going? I'm doing great. Great. So um, I'm part of a, a, a nonprofit organization, and, and we are uh, looking to host our own email uh, system. Um, looking around, you know, a lot of the hosted email providers um, mm -hmm. they are they're kind of costly mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, they're, they're kind of boiling, boiling it down to the per user per month, uh, payment plan there. And, and I was wondering if there's any email providers out there that would cut a deal to nonprofit organizations. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so let's start here. As much as I hate recommending cloud services, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention both Microsoft Office 365 and G Suite have uh, charity and nonprofit plans. And so you can get a hosted version of G Suite or, ho- or whatever they call it, Google Workplace now, a uh, hosted version of Google Workplace, or you can get a hosted version of Office 365 uh, for uh, for real cheap. And that is part of their commitment to supporting nonprofits. And Microsoft does it. They actually even take it one step further. They divide it into two plans. They call it E2 and E3 or something like that. And the idea there is you can get one plan that's like, I think it's actually free for nonprofits. You don't pay anything. And that gets you an email address and web access to the office suite. Then for like five bucks a month, which is considerably cheaper than like 15 or $16 a month that they charge for the regular thing, you get access to the actual office suite and then you can get Microsoft office. So it is not my first choice and it is not what I would do if I woke up in your shoes. But again, I would feel remiss if I didn't at least mention that that's an option. From there, what uh, what I where I would actually go is I would start with services like Fastmail. I'm not a big fan of self-hosting email because you're going to have problems, and unless you're prepared and willing to deal with those problems and prepared and willing to deal with those problems on a short time basis, because when people have trouble with email, it's not typically something that can wait. It's a you have to drop what you're doing and address it right this very minute. Um, because of that, those kinds of things, I'm a huge proponent and I tell clients and anybody that asks, don't host your own email, uh, hand it off to somebody. I like Fastmail because I think they are really competitive. Three bucks per, they do charge per user, but only $3 a month. Um, so that's even cheaper than the discounted Office 365 subscription, even with the charity support. Uh, if, you are dead set on hosting your email, then I would look at something like Mail in a Box. The people that disagree with me on that, and there's plenty of them out there um, that have hosted their own email, have a fantastic experience with Mail in the Box. And there's a gentleman that works at Ultaspeed Technologies, has been doing that for years, and tells me routinely he has no problems. Uh, And so it is entirely possible that all of my frustration with hosting mail is a thing of days gone by and I'm just an old curmudgeon that, you know, can't hack it. And there's, there, there are new, better open source technologies that allow you to do this. Okay. That's great. Yeah. I, I already host my own email, my own personal email. Okay. Um, So I'm up to the task and I'm excited to do it. Uh, I did use mail in a box. Okay. Obviously. Yep. For my personal email, but it all, everything you know, Google, Hotmail, mm. Yahoo, they all sent all the emails to spam. And yeah. so I, I went to the, uh, 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 what was that called? The Helm, mm-hmm. that little mm-hmm. service in a box. Yeah. Hoping that their email servers would be, would have a better reputation. No such luck. Everything is still going to spam. Really? And so I guess, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a cost efficient alternative, but with an email uh, server that has a better reputation so my emails won't go to spam. So did, when you set up mail in a box, did you set up like SPF and DKM and DMARC and, and those kinds of things? Yeah, I gave it a shot. Okay. I gave it the old college try. <laughs> I don't think I did it right. And so I think I, that might have been part of my problem. But Yeah. 
I would almost guarantee you if you're having trouble with your mail hitting spam that the problem there is SPF or DKIM. I almost guarantee it. Uh, We have routine problems with clients that have Office 365 or G Suite, um, you know, or Fastmail or whatever. And their problem stems from the fact that a lot of those providers, if you don't have those records set up, um, they they won't you'll have unreliable deliverable. Unreliable deliverability. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, well, our our organization email has certain trigger words in it. I think that uh, at this point in time, uh, I think that's what's sending our email to spam. Okay. So that's another hurdle that we have to overcome. Steve, what are your thoughts? You hosted your own email for a long time. Yep. Uh, near on two decades. <clears throat> um. I didn't get caught in spam too much, a little bit. Part of that, part of that came from um, I was just running on top. Camera is running my, and so part of it comes from like I had to go through the process of unblacklisting the IPs because somebody had them before DigitalOcean had them, and so on, mm. and they got marked as spam. Um, it is a, it can be difficult because if you get stuck on them. Uh, oftentimes I ended up having to explain to people that, how do I put this, that the issue wasn't necessarily on my end Mm -hmm. and uh, their server was bouncing stuff, right? So like I I had one very specific client that I was interacting with and their server was bouncing my emails and they kept telling me that, that it was my problem until... Like, so I had to take two or three hours out of my day to talk to their tech support <laughs> to show them how the email was working. I'm like, no, you're bouncing my emails. This is not my problem. Your server is doing this. Here's your problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to be, if you're going to host your own stuff, you have to be willing to do that. Sounds like he is. On the, yeah. And, and that could be okay. I would just put another little thing out there. Uh, what I like about Fastmail, I don't use it myself. I use ProtonMail. But what I like about Fastmail is that you can tie it in with Bitwarden to make aliases on the fly for everything. So like Bitwarden can generate a username and password, but it can also, if you tie it into Fastmail, can actually generate a user alias, like an email alias that yeah. you can use on websites. That's super handy. Like. I can't I can't stress that enough. I basically do that manually right now with Proton Mail. Okay. Um I do that myself. But um it would be really easy and it'd be a lot nicer to be able to um have that built right into Bitwarden. So So Tiny in the chat room says techsoup.org is a great use resource for cloud services specifically for nonprofit and Fastmail actually offers a 20% discount for nonprofits. So whatever price I quoted you, $3 a month, I guess you can take another 20% off of that. The other thing to be careful hmm. about is that there, I don't, I hesitate to use the word collusion because that, that puts too big of a thing on it, but there is definitely a big push to re-centralize email. And so the the providers are, are making it harder and harder to self-host your own email, especially they, they up the game in terms of like sending stuff to spam this this is c- catching small and medium businesses too. It's not just self hosters, so it's becoming increasingly difficult to interface with, for example, Gmail, um, because things are getting sent to the spam, and then you have to ask people to go into the spam and mark your domain as okay. So that's it. It has been an increasing trend that I decided 
I don't want to fight this for my wife. For me, I was willing to take that pain. I, I, no problem. But for her, it's like, it's the blockage of she has some problem with some website and now she's frustrated with the technology and this thing that I'm doing for her should make it simpler, not harder. And she's, you're either going to end up with users that are going to work around the problem. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll talk about this (laughs) in the bottom half of the show. Mm -hmm. Humans are very good at working around whatever restrictions you put on them if it's not worth their time. And so whether that's using Dropbox to transfer files because your company is, has made things too difficult or, using their own personal emails because the company one is is just unreliable or whatever these are all considerations that that need to be in the forefront if you're hosting your own email i'm going to bring tiny into our interactive mumble room you can join by by pointing your mumble client to mumble.mindrip1.com welcome in sir hey uh i just wanted to mirror steve's experience i actually just switched from hosting my own mail cow server to fast mail like last week after the show and um it had nothing to do with mail cow it had everything to do with the collusion whatever the better word is for collusion that steve was talking about okay and how are you liking it so far uh it was super easy to set up and their imap migration was uh works seamlessly like it just grabbed all my email in like an hour or less okay very cool um yeah what advice would you give to somebody who is a a nonprofit that is maybe approaching or looking at self-hosting it's probably not worth it um it will break at the most inopportune times for things that are just outside of your control (laughs) Yes. So my (laughs) example of that is I was at a job interview and I was like about to double my salary, but Google all of a sudden wanted to blacklist all of DigitalOcean's IP space. So I had to migrate my mail server while I'm trying to like juggle interviews and plan all that stuff. That sounds like a great deal of fun. Yeah, so I made it Fastmail's problem now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for for adding that. Um, Does that give you something to go off of mark and do you have some some things to try whether you want to self-host or if you're looking to hand it off to a service uh yeah i mean if i can get a discounted rate Mm. uh, and then have somebody else host the email so at least you know more than half of our organization can get our emails i mean that that's that's worth it right there i believe yeah absolutely uh, so we were able to get you we were able to get you an answer. You give that a shot and give us a call back. Let me know how it works out, okay? Yeah, absolutely. Do you have time for a second question? I absolutely do. Good. I just thought of it right now. Um, I tried to implement for our board of directors a, uh, uh, a group-wide chat system uh, with uh, uh, JMP. Okay, uh, yep. Uh, XM, yeah, JMP. And I was trying to bridge it across to SMS text messages so that because I didn't want everybody to have to download another app. Mm. A lot of our board members are not tech savvy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I thought this would be a good way for me to be able to access the group chat, you know, whether I'm on my laptop or my phone, uh, whatever the case was. But I noticed that if we let the group chat kind of stagnate, um, it like JMP disconnects everything. And when I try to send messages to the group, 
nobody gets them. Have you ever, do you have any? Um, uh, so, so everybody in the group has an SMS number and you've signed up for a JMP account and added that number to the SMS group. So now you have a group of SMS numbers and at the onset, people send messages to the group. You receive all of those. You send messages. The rest of the group receives those. After the group sits stagnant and nobody sends any messages for a while, you go to send a message in the group and they don't receive it. Is that my understanding that right? That's correct. No, I haven't. Uh, I haven't. I haven't experienced that at all. The, the closest I have to that situation is every once in a while, I will get a new message instead of it going into the previous chat. If somebody sends a message and this only happens with the matrix integration, it doesn't happen on, on the native XMPP client. I will sometimes get a new room created for those messages to come into. Um, and then like you say, if you respond to the old room, I don't have it working, but when I use just XMPP, I have no problems at all. Are you using um, like conversations on Android? Are you using the web UI from whoever the server that jmp.chat is recommending nowadays? Uh, yeah, a little bit of both. I'm I'm using a web client. I can't. I think it was con, converse.js. Okay. Yeah. I use the conversations.im on the on my Android phone. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. Interesting. No, I have not. Uh, I have. I have not. I have not run into that at all. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Are you on uh, Chatterbox Town for your XMPP service? That would be the default that's uh, recommended no. at JMP.chat. You oh. might be if yeah. So if you go to JMP.chat, you sign up for an you sign up for a number. The first thing they say is they they'll ask you. It'll say like you've selected this number, where would you like it delivered? And then I already have a Jabber account. I need to sign up for a Jabber account. I'm a SnakeNet user or I'm a Matrix user. Do you know which one of those you chose? Oh boy, that was so long ago, I don't remember. Yeah, I hear you. So I, I, so here's, I think here's the troubleshooting steps I would go to. If you have access to, to, your, to your SMS at the moment, you can send a, a message to, to Cheogram or to the, the JMP support and they'll move, they'll point your XMPP account wherever you want it. If you don't have an account on Chatterbox Town, you might consider trying that as I've had really good luck with uh, it being an awesome service to, to get XMPP messages. And then you can either use their web client, which it sounds like you are using, or you can use, uh, uh, conversations on Android or Gajim, G A G, uh, G A J I M, um, messenger client on, uh, I think they have Linux windows and Mac, but I have not been super impressed with the chat web UI. It seems like I lose chats, not lose them, but like they're, they're not, I log in and I have to scroll up and down to find where the chat is. It doesn't seem like it goes to, you know, in order of the last time I used it. And Gajim completely resolves all of that because then every single chat gets its own little contact, just like you would in, inside of a messenger application. And I would, I would say that conversations does the same thing for me on Android. And because they're both tied to the same XMPP account, that information syncs. So messages that I send, on my cell phone are available to me in Gajim. Messages or pictures that I send at Gajim are available to me on my cell phone. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll check that out. Anything else we can help with? No, that should be good. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate the call. Thanks for uh, thanks for giving us a call. And um, 
Yeah, if let me know. Give me a call back and let me know how that works out. Again, 855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. All right. Our first story tonight comes in from Remina. And Remina is looking for maintainers. So if you've ever thought about, I'm looking for a software project to get involved with, Remina would be one you might want to check out. Coming from, uh, I believe it's Antonor Gata. He says, hello all. As you might have noticed, the project is stagnating and there's a main reason for that. It's me. I no longer have time to track GTK advancements for which we need to rewrite most of the Remina code base. And additionally, I don't use Remina that much at my job is rapidly evolving. And lastly, I lose interest in using GTK. Giovanni, like me, is extremely busy with his job, and while we could submit some fixes sometimes, we can't assure anymore the level of support that we provided previously. Therefore, we're looking for new maintainers, and in the meantime, we're going to remove some functionality that costs us money and time. In the coming weeks, you'll notice the following new releases will remove these features. The Remnant News Widget. The Spice plugin, which will be moved to an external repository. The WWW plugin, which will also be moved to an external repository. And the GNOME VNC plugin. Further changes will be required in the long run if we don't find a new maintainer. In Q4 of 2023, the GitLab premium subscription will expire, so we'll be shutting down the CI/CD pipeline. The big issue is that the Snap package will no longer be built and released anymore. So if you care, take this announcement seriously. So I wanted to bring some attention to this first and foremost a huge thank you to Antonor Gata for doing all of the work that he's done I cannot tell you the level of uh, usefulness that I have gotten over the years from Remina it is a daily tool for us at Alta Speed we use it daily to connect to a bunch of machines in fact we're in the process of onboarding a new client and as part of that we are doing security monitoring an analysis for them, and we needed a machine that we were able to get into, and of course that machine is going to run Linux, and we were looking for the best way to remote into a Linux box, and it turns out a really awesome way to do that is with RDP, and then we can use the same Remina client that we remote into all the Windows machines, and we're able to re- re- remote into his uh, in, into the Linux box there. So Remina just up and down the box is just an amazing pro- amazing software project that is doing amazing work and would really like to get uh, somebody connected to them. So either reach out to the Remina project or reach out to me, reach out to live at asknoshow.com. If you have developer skills, um, I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear from you because I'd very much like to connect uh, this project with somebody who has some passion and some life in them uh, to take it to the next level. I still think RDP is a very important part and having an open source client is of course super important. Steve, do you use RDP for anything at work? Uh, I have occasion to use it. I honestly, I can't remember the last time I used Remina. I probably multiple, multiple years ago because um, there's lots of ways to do this on the command line. And instead of firing up a, a GUI tool, I'm more likely to just type in like XRDP and then the host name, for example. Like mm. there's a bunch of ways to do it. I, I definitely set up Remina for my dad um, when he was playing around with a bunch of Linux machines at his house. And so it was easy to put up a bunch of links that he could just click on to go get access to things. And that kind of suited his workflow. So it definitely has a a place in my heart, I suppose, even though I don't use it anymore. All right. Well, uh, we'll try and get somebody to connect it, uh, to connect with them. 
and take on the project or at least help out with the project. Certainly a huge thank you to everybody that's worked on it. Really fantastic work and would love to see that project continue. Firefox 106 is out and there are some cool uh, changes that are coming. Um, first of all, Firefox 106 with Wayland um, is, is great. Additionally, they have multi-touch trackpad or touchpad support. And so uh, if you've ever used, you know, two-finger swipe to go back or two-finger swipe to go forward, then uh, you can take advantage of this. The largest change or addition is the addition of the PDF annotation feature. And so they received feedback from people all over the place saying, I love Firefox. It's one of my favorite browsers. I love using it. The only problem I have with it is I run into these issues in where I have a PDF and I need to download it and I need to mark it up. So it has, you know, this little reader that pops up in the browser not terribly useful. And so I have to go download the Adobe Reader. I have to download Ocular. I have to download something else. Uh, and then I have to open it with this viewer. And so they've put a lot of work into trying to get this to work uh, for you so that you can use it just inside of Firefox and, and have no problem. So if you're not on Firefox, I would invite you to check it out, download the latest version of 106 and close circuit to Firefox and Mozilla. Good night, nurse people. You have to have a skip button on that new little welcome to Firefox, choose your color theme and all this stuff. There's like nine boxes to click through. Pick your color theme. Do you want this thing to show up here? What do you? And there's no skip button. It drives me up the wall. The first time I was like, that's kind of stupid. They don't have a skip button. The second time I was a little peeved. By the time I got through that, the, like the four, third or fourth day of work, you know, some of us have to bounce from one machine to another in which every time I launch Firefox, I have this stupid wizard that I have to go through and answer 19 questions before I can get back to browsing. Can't open a new tab. Oh, and by the way, then they add that stupid little thing up in the left-hand corner and it's a tab that I didn't ask for and didn't open and it's just permanently stuck up there until I right-click on it and tell it to go away. My gosh, people. So, uh, Firefox 106 is great. Um, there could be a little UI work to do in the way of their little uh, onboarding color picker thing that I don't really even understand why it's there. From the register, here's a headline I never thought I would cover on Ask Noah. President Biden wants his cybersecurity labels on smart devices. The Biden administration is pushing ahead with a drive for cybersecurity labeling to consumer of Internet of Things and may join other nations in adopting this, the scheme originally pioneered by Singapore. So the idea here is there are going to be standards for U.S. security labels, and they're going to try and roll this out by spring of 2023. And the idea here is it's a voluntary system. So, okay, Noah gives a two thumbs up because we're involuntary. We're not forcing anybody to do anything. I think that's a great start. The labels are expected to feature ratings that reflect the quantity of data collected, how easily the device can be patched or upgraded. Does it support data encryption? And interoperability. I my face just like my head exploded when I read that. If I could go into a big box store and take a look at devices that are on the shelf and know if hey, can I upgrade this and patch vulnerabilities? Does it support data encryption and is it interoperable with other stuff? I would love to have something labeled on the front of the device that tells me those things. Those are the things that you got. You guys come to ask Noah for right now because I'll buy the thing that doesn't have the label and I'll tell you if it, if you ha can update vulnerabilities or if it supports data encryption and if it's interoperable with other stuff. This is a fantastic idea and I like it even more that it's not uh, that that it isn't compulsory. It's something that these companies can choose to engage in and can choose to serve their customers better. So, Steve, 
I want to get your thoughts on this because I, 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 know, I know that I tend to get a little overly excited sometimes and I get ahead of myself. So tell me what the problems with the IoT security labels are. Well, I'm not sure that there's necessarily a problem with, with the labels themselves. I okay. think that there's no incentive to do this. I think that uh, making it voluntary, I don't see why a company would volunteer to do this. Mm. I you just think don't see why. So to you, it's just they kind of took the teeth out of it. Yep. I think that ultimately uh, it would be nice, but we can't even get clear symbols for recycling. So like you pick up the, the a recycling thing and you look and it has a recycling symbol, mm-hmm. but I would say like 60% of the things that have that don't can't actually be recycled. And really? that's because, oh yeah, you didn't know that? Did not know that. There's a number in the recycling that indicates what type of plastic it is. And there's only, there's only, I think it's only like one, two, and three or something like that that can actually be recycled. And for each number that goes down, the amount that can be recycled and the, how often it can be recycled like drops exponentially. So mm. that by the time you get a four, five, six, or a seven, they're basically sludge and they can't be recycled. Um, and that those were voluntary and that was supposed to like help people understand recycling and instead what it is is everybody thinks that all plastic is recyclable and it's actually something like 30 percent of it and it just turned out to be a big marketing fluff and so let me ask you this let me let me push back on that a little bit if i can so uh two bit in the chat room says only one and two plastics can be recycled if you knew that one or two plastics can be recycled and you know where to look does somebody who wants to recycle plastics that are labeled one and two would you be able to find the label and then choose to recycle those plastics well you could but the problem is is that everybody just dumps all of the recycling in and then the recycling center basically has to deal with what do i do with these other these other bits and so ultimately it doesn't provide you any value it gives a marketing thing so like you get a a a, an IoT thing that gets a, an upgradability of five, mm-hmm. and nobody has any idea what that means. Mm-hmm. It's just some scale, and they look at it like, "Oh, it can be, you know, it can be upgraded." I can upgrade five times. Thing. This is amazing. You know, um, <laughs> I I don't see. I think that it, it's an interesting idea. I'd like to see. I'd like to see some meaningful reasoning behind this. But from what I've read, the the big companies that were involved would only say, "Yeah, we were at the conference." Mm. They, there was no commitment. There was no like, yeah, we're all for this or, you know, it's great to have a new standard or we're moving forward with, you know, insert virtue signaling language here. It was just, yeah, we were there. So you're telling me that Microsoft and the Biden administration peed down my back and told me it was raining and I got excited and now I find out it's pee. That's what you're saying. I'm not saying that. So nothing I'm is good. These labels I- are useless and they don't do anything and they have no teeth. That's what I took from what you were saying. I mean, you could take that if you want to. They don't have any teeth. If they're voluntary, <laughs> um, what what benefit does this have to you, for you as a company? No, you're you're right. There 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 is a level of if we're not either we're all in or we're not all in. It is. I guess I would leave it at. It's nice to see that somebody is thinking about this and trying to move the th- needle forward. And if it doesn't end up actually working out, it was a really great idea that nobody wanted to participate in. But it's still a really great idea. Sure. I guess there are lots of great ideas that just can't come to fruition. Mm. 
leave it there. Microsoft Blue Bleed. <laughs> I can see Steve's eyes are compulsively twitching as I say the name. So Microsoft has confirmed a data link, and uh, this is a doozy. So essentially, they had a misconfigured server, and in a revelation last week, Microsoft Security Response Center said it was notified by the threat intelligence firm Sock Radar on the 24th about a misconfigured endpoint that exposed business transactions and data related to interactions between Microsoft and its customers. So the information uh, included planned use, potential implementations, provisioning of Microsoft services. Uh, obviously, once Microsoft knew about it, uh, they made changes and uh, secured it. But it was uh, a huge compromise. And my understanding is people had been scraping it for a long time. And nobody just had told Microsoft until the security firm reached out. Now, Microsoft disputes that. They come back and they said that they did an investigation and no customer accounts or systems are compromised. Uh, and they, they would have directly notified their affected customers, you know, the affected customers that didn't have anything uh, compromised. So why did they know? Anyway, so... In, you know, I, I read this and my takeaway is, how can this happen to Microsoft? They're a large enough company. They have a big enough budget, don't they? Well, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, they have people working for them. People make mistakes. And so one of the uh, one of the things that I often explain to my clients is it doesn't matter how good your automation is. The last time I checked, your automation was made by humans and mm. humans make mistakes. And so why do we think that the thing that humans can produce is going to be any less flawed? So, yeah, these big companies may have all of the red tape and they've got all of the automation and all of the scanning, but they're still human. And that means that this could have been an edge case that their scanning technology missed. And because they put all the faith inside of automation, I, I'm I'm supposing, right? But I yeah, have to imagine that that they have some sort of automated security checks, and this was some edge case that got missed. And because they trust in their automation, it just gets missed, and that's what happens. Mm. Humans humans will do that. We build this this fantastic rocket of a thing, and we forget to build the door to let the people in and out. Like, <laughs> so would you say that it's accurate or inaccurate to say that there are very smart technical people that work in Microsoft, there are very smart technical people that work in open source, both of them are equally capable of making mistakes. And so this idea that Microsoft has reached a point that they're infallible because they have enough resources or enough money or enough infrastructure or enough branding or enough marketing or whatever it is, that's kind of a flawed notion. At the end of the day, they're just another cloud provider. I would go a little bit more cynical than that and just say, the bigger you are, the more likely you are to have people that are just going to float by. Mm. And and so I see it time and time again at clients where you have like super high achievers. And then for every super high achiever, you've got 70, 80, 90 people that are just doing the bare minimum. So mm. if somebody that doesn't unblock them, they're just like, I'm stuck. <laughs> and that's that's the end of the report, you know. Um, so I just I would say the bigger that you are, the easier it is to um, be okay with inactivity, right? Okay. So, like it's okay, it's okay in a lot of these clients that I go to that are like, yeah, I'm stuck. I've been waiting on this person for like five days. I'm like you, <laughs> you spent a week not doing anything on this task. And everybody's okay with that. Everybody's fine like, with it. Let me yeah. ask you, do you think that this would have happened in the early 2000s? 
I imagine that it would. I think that one of the things that we're dealing with is um, everybody is hyper connected and hyper tuned into everything. And while I don't think that the level of computer literacy has matched the level of technology growth, Mm -hmm. it is further ahead than what it was before. People understand this idea of like massive data data dumps and, and their importance. Whereas in the early aughts, I I don't have any empirical data for this, but I I believe that these sorts of things would have happened, mm. but they would have stayed within the tech community because the broader community doesn't really care about what's happening, like didn't understand the, the importance and significance of data. Like we've got these trillion dollar companies out there that are they're based on data mining. Yeah. And so everybody understands that data is valuable at some point. They didn't exist in the, you know, the early aughts. So just as that vernacular has changed and it's become more popular, people get their head wrapped around this. Does it bother you at all that they're calling this a vulnerability or that they name it like it's a vulnerability? I mean, Noah's leading me to drink at the pool. We were talking about <laughs> leading, leading people to the answer that you want to talk about. Um, yes, this is, this wasn't, as far as I understand, this wasn't some like backdoor that they found in, in Azure or some vulnerability, like somebody left the RDP open or anything like that. Somebody just left something misconfigured and that's the end of it. And so uh, when I was reflecting upon this earlier, I was thinking, what are we going to do? Like name every mistake <laughs> ever? Like, okay, it makes sense to name a CVE because there's tracking purposes and stuff like that where there's a bug or bugs filed and security patches that have to go out and... This was just like human error. We we're just going to start naming all the human errors. I'm going to name have a problem. I'm going to uh, instead of CV, I'm going to call it STEVEs and uh, oh, STEV yeah, ones. Yeah, no problem. Hey, that's what I do. <laughs> it's just a service I provide. And the music in our ears that means we're out of time. Thanks for joining us. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. You can join us live either via phone, via mumble, via chat room. The chat room's available throughout the week. Geeklab.ninja. We would enjoy having you there. We'll see you next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ask. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. Show's at Ask Noah So. Show. Wow. Easy for me to say. Catch me on KNOX. KNOXradio.com, 9 to noon, weekdays. Have a good week.